Well, we finish up today a really dense and very helpful paragraph in the Bible about church leadership, one that has helped us to see how the Lord would have us arrange leadership in our church, the sort of men that we ought to put into office. We finished that up this week. And if you're just joining us and you haven't been here in a while, we're partway through a series through the book of Titus, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his apprentice, Titus, who he had left on an island of Crete to strengthen and bring to maturity the churches there so that the churches could be left on their own to fend for themselves because, of course, they would not have apostles around forever. And we find in that letter many principles that can strengthen us as a church and prepare us for the next season that comes our way. So we look there for those today. And here's how I hope that we are helped today, the way that I've been praying that God would help us today as a church. There are two things that we really need, each of us as Christians. One is a sense of how important it is that the one who is opening the Bible and teaching it to the church be utterly dependent on the gospel of Jesus. He's got to be completely dependent on the gospel, and his teaching has to be full of the Bible. That is of vital importance to the church, and we don't just need to believe that. We need to sense it and believe it all the way down to the core. So that's one thing I hope it gives us this morning, a renewed sense of how important that is. And the second thing we need, I pray it gives to us, is just a good sniffer for gospel teaching, right? The ability to hear teaching and know from afar, ah, that's gospel. I can smell that from afar. Ooh, that's false teaching. I can smell the difference, right? The ability to discern one from the other. We need that as well, and I pray this text gives us that. What should we look for in Bible teaching? What is most important in times like this when I stand in front of you with the Bible, in times like your Sunday school classes and in women's Bible study when someone opens the Bible and says, here's what the book says, here's what we must do, what's most important? We hope to answer that question today from God's Word. So what we'll do here for our reading is just like we did last week, we'll read the paragraph that today's verse is in, and then I'll give you the structure of that paragraph, same as I did last week. Then we'll focus in on this week's verse, which is chapter 1, verse 9. If you've got your Bibles open, would you open it to the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 5? Or if you have your worship order, your worship guide with you, you'll find the whole paragraph there, and you'll find today's verse in bold. Here's the paragraph that today's verse is in. It says, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And the next paragraph starts, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. And then it goes on to describe those false teachers. So here's the structure again of the paragraph we have been in for four weeks now. To some of you, this is review. That's by design. To some of you, it will be new. Uh, Paul has left Titus in Crete, as I said earlier. Titus has two main jobs there. One is to appoint leaders, and the other one is to urge everyone to live the Christian life, which is what chapters 2 and 3 are about. 
in verse 5, he gets into that first purpose. He says, Titus, I left you in Crete to appoint elders in every church. He uses the word elder, and then later in the paragraph, the word overseer for the office that we often call pastor. These are the shepherds of the church, the leaders of the church. And he says, I want multiple of them, many of them in every church to care for the church so that we can leave them and they can be in their own care without apostles over them. And then he spends the rest of the paragraph talking about the sort of men that we can put into that role. Uh, There is one type of man. It is a blameless man, or your translation may say like mine, an above reproach man, which just means that he has to be trustworthy. Only trustworthy men can be put into the office of pastor. That's the kind of man we can put there. And that's the only kind of man. And so the question will come down to, is he trustworthy or not? That's the end criteria there. But there are three measurements he then gives us to see, well, how do we know if he's trustworthy? And the first one is in the second half of verse 6. It is his family life, his relationship with his wife and his children. And then the second one is in verses 7 and 8, the kind of character he represents. We talked about that last week. And then the third one is the one we talk about this week, his teaching. You can find out from his teaching if he is a trustworthy pastor or not. Then the next paragraph tells us why this is so important. It's so important because there are many false teachers, many wicked people who would like to prey upon the church, and we must keep the church safe from those people. That can only be done if we have many trustworthy men shepherding us and protecting us. So, That's the idea of the paragraph. We need pastors. We need them to be trustworthy men. You can find out if he's trustworthy by looking at his family, his lifestyle, and his teaching. And we need this so badly because there are so many wolves who would like to prey upon the church. So in that structure, you can see where we are today, the verse that is in bold in your handouts today, and that is verse 9. I'll read it more slowly. This is where we focus today. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. God's word for us today. So we have here in these words the third measurement that we must apply to a man to see if he is trustworthy enough to pastor. And that measurement, said in two ways, does he cling to the gospel and can he teach it? And through those, the Lord is reminding us how important it is that Bible teaching be dependent on the gospel and be full of the Bible, of vital importance to the church. God's showing us what to look for in a pastor, keeping us from worldly expectations for the men and women that we have teach us, because of course, In some women's Bible studies, we have women doing this as well. We in our church have men serving as pastors. For all of these people who are teaching us the Bible, what do we need to look for? Well, here it is. So what we'll do this morning is I will walk slowly through these words and what they mean, and then we'll walk through five points in the gospel that I think we ought to use to evaluate anyone's preaching or teaching to see, does this person cling to the gospel? Is this the true gospel that I am hearing here? Which we'll then use as a rubric later on in later sermons when we talk about confronting false teachings and which of those five points are denied in various false teachings. So we start then with the words that are here in the text. You could divide it into three parts if you wanted to. 
The second and third parts split by the word and. He's got to be able to do two things. Give instruction, sound doctrine, and refute those who contradict it. He's got to be able to do both of those things. So that's parts two and three. Part one is separated from those two by the words so that. If you're looking at it, you can see the words so that there. And part one is that he's got to cling to the gospel. So the overall logic is he's got to cling to the gospel so that he can do those two things, so that he can teach the good news and so that he can refute those who contradict sound teaching. He's got to cling to it so he can teach it and correct others. So the first thing, the first part, the first thing he must be able to do is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So whatever the word is, he's got to hold firm to it. So what is the word? What does he mean when he says the word? Well, writers in the New Testament would often use this phrase, the word, uh, to speak of the good news, the gospel itself, the news that Jesus died and rose offering forgiveness to sinners and the call to turn from sin and trust in him, the gospel that we love, the gospel that we can hardly get through without calling everyone here to come into God's kingdom. He's got to cling tightly to that word got to hold on to it like his life depends on it, because his life does depend on it. He's got to hold on to it like his preaching depends on it, because his preaching does depend on it. I'll tell you a story about one time that I felt this very same way about something else, and the way that I felt that day is how every preacher must feel about the gospel. So when I was younger, I was in college, uh, I went to Costa Rica one time, and it was a awesome trip. We got to see a volcano. And at one point, these people had set up zip lines from mountaintop to mountaintop in the rainforest, some of them a mile or more long. And we got to ride these zip lines from mountaintop to mountaintop. And at first, it was just kind of through the trees and you got to see cool stuff around you. But by the end, you were just in the sky. And it was, it was amazing. So we, we get up there to the first platform, and I'm pretty excited, a little bit nervous. I don't really know what to expect. And the tour guide, uh, I think he tied just a rope around my waist. I don't think it was even a proper harness or anything. And he took a carabiner and fastened me to the zipline trolley so that if I were to let go, maybe I would be held by this rope that was tied around my waist and this carabiner that fastened it on there. But it was pretty obvious that I was going to have to hang on to this trolley if I wanted to make it all the way. And the rope was loose, so you didn't feel like you were in a harness. So we do this, and I, and I look out, and it's, it's like a half mile to the next platform that we're about to ride on this zip line. And I'm thinking, this is, this is crazy. And he, uh, he harnesses himself in and just says, I and just jumps and goes. And uh, there I am on this platform, no way to get out of the jungle rainforest except to ride on the zip line. So eventually I made it onto the zip line, got on there, held on tight, and went on to the next one. And there were 10 or 15 of these. And he said, they're going to get longer and longer and more and more spectacular as we go. And so the first one, I'm just riding through some trees and I see branches going by and see a little bit of wildlife and it's pretty amazing. Well, the second one was truly from mountain peak to mountain peak. And you could not see through the rainforest clouds the other platform. It's just a vanishing cable, and you just got to go on and ride it. And so the tour guide, once again, just lets out a big woo and just goes, and he's gone, and now I've got to go after him. And eventually I made it onto that trolley, too, and was 
gone down and uh, looked back and at one point could not see behind me anymore, but now I could at least see the platform that I was going to. It wasn't just some abyss I was flying into. Landed on there just fine. Well, these things kept getting longer and longer to where eventually you would be in between two of them and you couldn't see the platform you were going to. You could turn around behind you and you couldn't see the platform behind you either through the mist, but maybe you could see a few hundred feet down to the ground and you just cling to that hand trolley. And finally, on one of the last ones, I could not see the platform in front of me. I could not see the platform behind me and looking down, the ground was even so far away that the clouds prevented me from seeing the ground. I was just in this abyss of nothing. And at some point it occurred to me this rope carabiner system is really not worthy of this activity we're doing here. Like, if my hands were to fail from this trolley, the odds are like 50-50 that that rope's going to carry me all the way there. I could plumb down to the, the ground that I cannot see. And so you better believe my hands gripped that trolley like my life depended on it. I'm surprised that I did not involuntarily break that thing in half as tightly as I was gripping it that day. And then finally, eventually, I was able to see the platform land on it, and it was all done. Friends, when the Bible is opened and the good news is proclaimed, you need a teacher and a preacher who clings to the good news of Jesus the way that I gripped that hand trolley that day, in a way that says, whatever safety mechanisms I've got in place, if this gospel doesn't have any power, they're not going to work. My only hope is to hang on to this word, to hang on to this gospel, and let it carry us all the way home. Whatever tricks I've got up my sleeve to try to build a crowd and try to make everyone pleased with the message, they're not going to work. There isn't life in them. The only thing we can cling to is the gospel. You need a teacher, you need a preacher, you need a pastor who is that dependent on the Word of God, not only for his own life, but for his ministry to succeed, because only the gospel can give true life and true success to ministry. So that's the first thing that he must be able to do. He must cling to the gospel. And so the question you got to ask is, well, wait a minute, there are, there were then several versions of the gospel going around. There's the Gnostics over here and the circumcision party over here teaching all kinds of false stuff and claiming they were Christians preaching the gospel. Today, there's the health and wealth gospel and the self-help gospel and there's moralism and there's a political gospel and there's all sorts of stuff that claims to be the gospel and is not. Which gospel does he need to cling to? Plenty of people who claim to cling to the gospel. Which one? And that is why Paul says to the trustworthy word as taught. If you look in your worship guide, we quoted earlier this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. And one of the connections that he makes in that text, he said, I'm delivering to you what was given to me, right? The apostles had seen the risen Lord. They had been given the gospel and commissioned to give it to them. And it was that Jesus died he was buried and he rose according to the scriptures. And so the sources of truth were on one hand, Jesus gave this message to the gospels, or I'm sorry, to the apostles, and they were authorized to preach it. And on the other hand, the scriptures 
are the authority there, according to the scriptures. They had in that day living apostles who had heard the word from Jesus and were proclaiming it with authority. And so when Paul says the trustworthy word as taught, he means the one that we taught you, the one that Jesus taught us and we taught you. And you can tell from this passage in 1 Corinthians, he means the one that is anticipated in the scriptures, the one that is according to the scriptures. And so today we have many of the writings of the apostles and we have the scripture in our hands. And so while they were looking to the, word, the spoken teaching of the apostles to figure out which gospel was right, we look to the words in the scriptures. Which of those many gospels out there today is contained in this Bible? The one that says that he died, the one that says that he was buried, the one that says that he rose according to the scriptures. The one that holds fast to the words in this book, that is the gospel that is true. So which gospel? The gospel that is taught in the word of God, the gospel that is taught in the Bible. Do not suffer a man who preaches any other gospel to this gathered people. Now, many of you know I pray that it is me who preaches it to you for a long time, but I must give you those words every chance I get. No matter what, let us not suffer any man who preaches a different gospel than the one that is contained in this word before this gathered people. That is the first quality this man must have. He must hold firm. He must depend on the good news of Jesus like his life and ministry depend on it because they do. The next words we see are, so that, and that connects the first part to the other two. So if he holds fast to the gospel, that's part of being able to do the next two things, being able to give instruction in sound doctrine and being able to rebuke or refute or correct those who contradict it. So don't miss the connection there. He's got to hold firm to the word or he's not going to be able to give instruction in the Bible. One who forsakes the gospel will misinterpret the Bible, and he will not be able to give instruction in it. He will not be able to rebuke those who contradict it. So we'll walk through then those two skills, those two things he must be able to do. And it's very rare in these qualifications that it talks about abilities, but here is something he must be able to do. Two things he must be able to do. The first is teach sound doctrine. He's got to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Doctrine is the content of what someone teaches. It's not all of the teaching. It's not the style of teaching. It's not what he wears when he teaches. It's not whether or not his teaching is on YouTube or not. It's the content, the truth that is being communicated. That is the doctrine. And one way to remember this is that some churches, though not our church, some churches have what's called a doctrinal statement. And a doctrinal statement is literally, here is what we teach at this church. It, that would not be a statement that they would require every member of the church to hold to and to believe. It would just be what the teachers in the church teach together, because doctrine is what is taught. Now, our church is different. We have a statement of faith, and so our statement of faith, every member professes to believe. That's the difference between a statement of faith and a doctrinal statement. What is believed here versus what is taught here. Doctrine is what is taught, the content that is taught. And there's this phrase, sound doctrine. He's got to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, which is a phrase that these writers would use to just mean the truth. You know, good, strong, healthy teaching. Uh, 
And the word sound has some medical nuances to it. Uh, you might hear today your doctor say that you were in sound health or he wants to get you in sound health. Well, that would mean if you're in sound health that your body's working properly, things are working well, you're able to get up and move around and live life and do all of the things that someone in your age would expect to be able to do because you are of sound health. That's how good life works when you have sound health. Well, sound doctrine is the sort of teaching that leads to a spiritual version of that healthy life. It brings sound life. It brings sound health into someone's lifestyle. It enables you to, spiritually speaking, get up, walk around, do good works, bear the fruits that Christians are expected to do. It is the teaching that imparts spiritual life to people. It is the teaching that leads churches into sound health together, and the teaching that leads individuals into sound health in their life. Sound doctrine, sound teaching is what does this. And so there's an implication here, just from the phrase that he's using that we need to consider for a minute. Uh, that is that true teaching gives life to a congregation. False teaching by implication would bring death to a congregation. False teaching can be thrilling for a generation. It can blow a church up when it comes to numbers for a generation. But rarely does it last because it's not imparting true spiritual life into the people that receive it. What gives life and health to a congregation is true teaching, sound doctrine, which leaves people in sound health. And that's what we have to be striving for. That tells us then that if we want to be a healthy church, and that is really my vision for us, if I just want to put it into a couple of words, what do I want for us in 20 years? A sound and healthy church. Doesn't sound spectacular, but it is, and it is supernaturally done by God's word. If I could choose for us to be one thing in 20 years, it would be the healthiest church in Greenwood. That's what I want us to be. Not necessarily the biggest church in Greenwood, not necessarily the richest church in Greenwood, but the healthiest church in Greenwood. And there is only one way we can get to sound health as a church, and that is sound teaching. Sound teaching leads a church to sound health. Let's not look anywhere else for sound health. Let's not look in practical advice, though we must be wise in the way that we walk. Let's not look to false teaching. Let's not look to crowd-building strategies. Let's look to true sound teaching to lead us to good health. That is what we must do. So the ability, then, that this teacher must have is uh, he must be able to tell you what this book says in a way that affects your everyday life, in a way that brings your life into sound health. That is what sound teaching does. So notice that it is not enough for him to have his doctrine sorted out. It's, it's not enough that he believes all of the right things and can give all of the right answers on the survey. It's not enough that he has the truth in here and that healthy truth is making his life new. He has to be able to articulate it to you in a way that you can understand that can bring life to you as well. Now, if you're here and you're listening to teaching, or if you're in your Sunday school class and you're listening to Bible teaching, and you've come expecting somebody who's very entertaining, and you're going, oh, this guy isn't funny enough, well, that's, that's on you. You're looking for the wrong thing in teaching. If you come looking for charm, and he's not charming enough, well, that's on you as well. You're looking for the wrong thing in teaching. 
But if you come wanting to learn truth, leaning in, trying to understand what is said, and he's not able to communicate truth to you in a way that matters to you, then that is on him. Because that is what we expect from our teachers and our preachers, to make the word of God clear to everyday life. That's what he must do when it says he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The other thing he must be able to do is to refute those who contradict it or rebuke or correct those who contradict it. And I think that this is much more difficult personally. There may be some who find it easier. But it's one thing to take what a text says or to put a few texts together into a teaching on the Trinity or something, think for a while on what the clearest way is to say it, and then say it in a way that's clear and real to life. That's one thing, because you have hours at your desk to sort that out and figure out how you're going to say it. It's another thing when someone springs a question on you like, well, if Jesus prays to God, that must mean that Jesus isn't God. So Jesus must not be God. And you've got to be ready right then to come back and say, well, wait a minute. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus is God. And let me show you some verses that have to do with that. That's much more difficult. But that's what someone in pastoral office must be able to do. I'm trying to think back to just the last seven days, the different false ideas that I've had to talk about and equip other people to handle Um, Some of them include that very false idea about Jesus perhaps not being God. Uh, One person had a question about someone else who teaches that the archangel Michael is Jesus, that they're the same person, and they had some verses that they tried to go along with that, and I had to confront that. Another one uh, was giving, uh, giving... prophetic dreams that he had had on YouTube that someone in our church was interested in, and so we talked together about that. So I had to get a whole theology together about how prophecy works and how prophetic dreams and predictive dreams work. Uh, Another question about whether it was okay for Christians to embrace holidays that have some pagan origin like Christmas and things like that. All this just wide variety of things just in the last seven days that on my toes I had to be ready to talk about and to confront. That's what's expected of guys that are in pastoral office. And none of that is the point. The point is that next week, I don't know what I'll get asked about. I don't know what false idea will go around that I'll be the one responsible for either helping someone confront or confronting myself. You've got to be ready to do those things. Now, how can someone be ready to give a biblical answer to the wide variety of things that people spout false ideas about today? Does he have to be the smartest guy in the room? No. No one is smart enough to confront all of those things. How can a man do that and be ready to answer all of those questions? It's by taking this book and just clinging to it. He has to live day by day reading this book, memorizing this book, studying this book, knowing what is where and where to turn about this topic and where to turn about that topic. So at a moment's notice, he can open the book and take people to what they need to hear in that moment. Now, the word says elsewhere, the Bible says elsewhere, that he must be able to do this with gentleness. Uh, It says correcting all opponents with gentleness, Paul writes. And that means that, interestingly, he has to be the sort of man who is ready for a theological fight at any moment, but also never looking for one. He's ready to play defense for the gospel whenever it comes, but he's never looking to fight. 
It's going to be a man who can fight and argue well, but does not like to argue with people. This is a difficult balance. How can a man do that? By clinging to the Spirit of God that rests in him because he believes in the gospel. If he doesn't cling to the gospel, he can't do these things. The Spirit of God won't be dwelling in him. He won't be full of the Spirit, and he will not be able to do these things. So all of this hinges back on those first words. He's got to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he can give instruction and contradict when it's needed. So what this comes down to then is, uh, as, as one of you put it to me recently, will a man preach Christ? And this man who said this says, if he doesn't, either he can't or he won't. It's one or the other. Will the man preach Christ? This is the question you've got to ask every time. Uh, every time you're trusting a new teacher, getting to know a new teacher, getting to know a new preacher, is this man preaching the good news of Jesus to me? So I hope this does two things for us. Like I said earlier, I hope we're all sensing right now how important it is to the life of the church that the Bible teaching be filled with the Bible and be dependent on the gospel. It's not enough that there be truth in there. It's not even enough that there be biblical truth in what he is saying. It must all rest and depend upon the gospel, or it will ultimately and eternally be fruitless for the people of God. So with that sense of importance, what I want to do to close our time together is just equip you with a kind of a grid to think through, okay, is what I'm hearing here the gospel, or does it just sound like gospel teaching? Because in a sort of nominally Christian culture like ours, which has some Christian roots in it, and there's, you know, there's faith sprinkled out through the whole thing, in a culture like that, false teachers get very good at sounding like they are preaching the gospel. They know the words to say. They know the way to make you feel. They know the cultural feeling that the gospel is supposed to have for us. But what should I really listen for as someone is proclaiming the gospel? I want to give you five things that you should listen for, and I'll walk through them all very quickly. Um, we may spend more time going into them later. And then in future sermons, what I hope to do is compare false teachings against these five things. Uh, to give them really quickly, it's God's worthiness, our sin, coming judgment, forgiveness in Jesus, and new life after that. If any of those five things are missing, what you're hearing is something different than the gospel. Let me, let me parse each of them out. It starts with God's holiness and worthiness to be completely worshipped and obeyed in all of life. If someone does not sense within them that the God of the Bible is real and that he cares what we do, and therefore there is a right and wrong, and he is the one that determines it, and that he is so holy and so glorious, so worthy of every moment of our worship, whatever he demands in worship, he's worthy of it. And whatever moral lifestyle he says is right, he is worthy of that as well. He's worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience. If someone doesn't sense that deeply, they're not ready to receive the gospel because they won't understand that they're a sinner in need of forgiveness and that they must answer to this God and need forgiveness from him. So people must be pushed to realize. They must hear and get a sense of how real God is and how much he cares what we do. That's number one, God's worthiness to be obeyed and worshiped in all things. The second one, our sin, is our complete failure to do that. 
if we see just for a moment how great he is, how worthy he is of obedience in every moment and, and worship in every way that he asks for, if we can see that, it's not hard to see that we don't meet that standard. We've, we've not given him full obedience. We've not given him true worship as he asks for. And if this year that we have had together as a world and a country is not enough to show you that we are fragile, that we are vulnerable, and that there is hatred in all of our hearts, friend, I don't know what will show you that. We simply have to look around and evaluate our own lives to see this. So that's number two, that we have sinned greatly before this God. So his worthiness, our sin, and then number three, the inevitability of judgment. If he's worthy of that, and we refused to give it to him. Well, what could happen but judgment? What could be coming our way but judgment? And what good God would not judge us for what we have done? What just judge doesn't care what a criminal does? And what just God does not care about our sin against him? If we see these things truly, it sets us up to realize what we are headed for, the worst of possible futures, coming judgment for every individual and the whole world. And we can't just believe that. We've got to sense that. Martin Luther once said, if you want to become saved, you must first become terrified. That sounds like a harsh thing to say, but really it's not. If you're not afraid at some moment of what is coming to you, you're not ready to be saved because you don't realize that you need to be saved. You don't realize that you're in need of forgiveness. So that's number one, two, and three. Number four is the heart of the gospel, what we often sometimes just call the gospel itself. And that is a call to put your trust in Jesus to receive forgiveness. The way that he secured this for us was by his death on a cross. He is the son of God and he is God himself. Uh, He chose, though he was perfect, he offered God perfect worship and perfect obedience to his father. Yet he chose to be given up as a sacrifice in our place. And so by him, God is both just toward our sin, and he can justify us and call us forgiven. What you must do to receive that is turn and trust in him. And that's number four, forgiveness through faith in Jesus. Number five, then, is new life. If you put your trust in Jesus in this way, God will lead you in a new life, a resurrected life life. He will give you a new heart, the prophets say, that long to obey him, a spirit that fears him, which just means to worship him in awe and obey him. He will make you long to worship him. You will find him more beautiful than all things, and you will want to be here every week, not because your friends are here, not because it's a beautiful day outside, but because Jesus is here with us and because you long to worship. And these are the kinds of things he will begin to develop in you as he gives you new life and you begin walking anew in his ways. Those are the five points that I would tell you to look for in every person's preaching. I would even go as far as to say if you listen to 10 sermons from one man and any of those things are lacking, if you never get a sense of how worthy God is of your obedience, never get a sense of how sinful we are, or never get a sense of judgment and the fact that it's coming, or never get a sense of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it means to you, or never get a sense of what it would be like to walk in new life, I would tell you that preaching is deficient. That preaching is coming from someone who does not cling tightly enough to the word of God. Those are the things that we need to give life to the church. That is the sort of teaching that gives soundness and life to the church. 
Now, in future weeks, we'll talk about false teaching, and I hope to tell you then a few ways that we can look at false teachings and evaluate them with those five things. So if you're already thinking, wait, what was number two? Don't worry. We'll talk about that again, and uh, we'll try to get that down as best we can as we evaluate other teachings. For now, we must look at what we should expect. What should we expect? We should expect someone who clings to the gospel, who sees that their entire ministry is dependent on the power of that word and that message. Someone who's able to tell you what this book says in a way that impacts your life and is able to correct those who contradict it. This is of vital importance to the future, the life, the health of the church. And so where we see it in our sister churches, let's rejoice that it is there. And where we don't see it, let's ask God to bring it there that there may be life. Let's pray together.